Hey there, everybody, and welcome to Cinema on Tap, your weekly movie podcast with a refreshing selection of movie reviews and industry topics on tap for discussion. As always, I am Scott Lenz, joined by my friend, co-host, and drinking buddy, Christian Ubius. Now, Christian, we're recording this episode virtually, unfortunately, but... You're I, virtual. You're yes, virtual. I'm virtual, yeah. Try, I, I, I can't reseal the can, so no, I don't want to, I don't, I, I'm, look, I actually really like White Claw. I, I used to judge people who drank it, and then I, I tried the flavors, and the flavors are great. I don't think they make an unflavored White Claw, so listeners out there, if you've had it before, let us know. But Christian, you specify that I'm virtual, which might sound strange to folks who are used to listening to two people talk in this podcast. But of course, you are in person with a guest joining us today and a new friend to the show. It's Hadley Vogler. So Hadley, thanks for being here. Welcome to Cinema on Tap. Thanks for having me. And I take full responsibility for not opening the white cloth properly. Wait, you didn't open it? No. So the thing is, I wanted to make the sound because you guys do the sound together and it's so cool. So I was like, I'm going to do that too. Um, but you can't see it because this is a podcast, but I flipped it. It made the sound, but then nothing opened. I'll show you on... You oh, know, okay. It's tripping. It's tripping. It's tripping. Oh, it's no. tripping. <laughs> it halfway opened. Um, okay. So this is also the part where I put up some soundproofing and the soundproofing is actually my comforter. So now there is White Claw on my comforter. <laughs> Christian, you're truly living like a college student all it's over the, again. Yeah, it's, it's a bachelor experience. Uh, you say that like it's a bad thing in this time of my life, um, which it is, Christian. but it's... Oh, maybe it is. <laughs> okay. Um, so, the, the um, Hadley, uh, I've known you for a bit, and I had always... Because when I was inviting some people who we knew, I was like, what is the episode that Hadley should be on? And then I was floating to you Disney movies, and I did say Cinderella, and you were like, okay. And then I said that the following week we'd be discussing Beauty and the Beast, and then you just lit up, and you were like, yes, we're going to discuss Beauty and the Beast. <laughs> Those were, I remember when you asked me on, you were like, how do you feel about Disney movies? And I was like, oh my god, I love them. And there, you were like, great, you're going to be on the Disney episodes. Um, and I was really drawn to Beauty and the Beast because it's... Um, just such a wonderful story and I actually felt the most connected to Belle as a child. I was very uh, book smart, shall we say. Um, yeah. And uh, she was like just so strong and wise and like it's the first Disney princess I think that really fights for herself rather than for a man, which I think is really different than all the previous Disney leads, heroines. She openly rejects the man. She does. For a good chunk of time. Yeah. Repeatedly, yes. She, she rejects both men that are interested in her. Yes. And, yeah. And honestly, if she had ended up with neither one, would have also worked. Yeah, for sure. If it was made today, she'd end up alone. It was made today, and she did not end up alone. No, but that was, <laughs> that was a remake, right? <laughs> 
That was a remix. Are you talking about the Emma Watson one? I am talking about the Emma Watson one. Did you know that Emma Watson left La La Land in order to do Belle? It's probably best for La La Land. (laughs) I I love Emma Watson. I want to put it out there that I love her, but she is not the strongest singer, and you can tell. Okay. Um, Sky. Christian, as a La La Land fanatic, uh, a really enthusiast, I guess I should say, that feels like a stat that you read online and did not fact check. But <laughs> No, that was we something can, uh... that they asked Emma Stone, how do you feel about taking over this role from Emma Watson when she won the Academy Award? And she said, oh, we're good. She's going to be Belle now. Okay. Well, I'll, I will look into this and perform some fact-checking, as uh, any good journalist would do after this, Christian. Because, of course, we're not here to talk about the live-action remake of Beauty and the Beast. No, 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 no. Are we going to talk about the live-action about... remake of Lion King? Oh, yeah. <laughs> they taught Let's those do... lions really well. I actually never watched when... that. You don't have to. I saw... No, here's the thing what happened. I saw a clip of Be Prepared, which is one of my favorite songs. And then I was like, I can't watch this movie. <laughs> I gave it a mildly positive review at the time, and I'm afraid to rewatch it because I feel like <laughs> I would I would be ashamed of my a couple of years ago younger self. But of course, we can do a honestly, we could do a live action remake uh, version of this entire month uh, once the Snow White remake hits theaters. <laughs> we could even do the Kristen Stewart one instead. But Pinocchio got a extremely poorly reviewed live-action remake. Cinderella got a live-action remake. The Jungle Book got a live-action remake. Disney's really cruising through their back catalog there. But of course, we're here to talk animation. That is the that is the goal here of wait, this year podcast. Let's do the beer fun fact and then go into whatever it is that we're going to talk about. Christian, you have hyped up this particular beer fun fact, so I just want to say it better be good. Humans annually consume 50 billion gallons of beer bro 50 billion gallons hadley yeah if christian told you that and you and he you had to guess if it was actually more or less what would you have said well before i spent a uh weekend with a holiday uh, not a holiday a family reunion with my family i would have said it would have been way less but after that weekend um (laughs) I'd say it's pretty accurate, yeah. Okay. 50 billion gallons, that seems right. I was, it was the whole weekend, and I always had some sort of beer in my hand. Um, But you're not a beer drinker. I'm not, but I was just forced to go to all these breweries, and they're like, well, you got to buy something out of respect, you know? Out of respect, that's true. Yeah, so. Oh, got to respect the beer. Mm -hmm. What are we talking about? What's what's the taster? What's the beginning of this? (laughs) I was just about to say, if you weren't so hasty, Christian, as listeners of this show will know, we've been looking back at the history of Disney animation here on the podcast as we are anticipating the release of their new movie, Wish, and celebrating Disney 100 in recognition of 100 years of Disney Studios and all of its various names. We spent the first week looking at the golden age of Disney, talking about Snow White and the Seven Dwarves and Pinocchio. We followed it up with the silver age of Disney, talking through Cinderella, 
and the Jungle Book. And now we get to arguably the most famous period in Disney animation's history, the Disney Renaissance, which took place from 89 to 99 and produced, honestly, classic after classic to folks like us who grew up in the 90s and 2000s and spent a lot of time watching these on VHS tapes or rented from Blockbuster because they were the some of the best kids and family-oriented movies created at the time in this humble movie watcher's opinion. So, Christian Hadley, I, I turn to you. Do you what, what kind of connection do the two of you have with the Disney Renaissance? Because I know when I look back at this particular list of movies, it's some of my favorites from when I was a kid, including the first movie I ever saw in a movie theater, Mulan, which my parents took me to when I was only two years old, and apparently I sat and watched the whole thing, which I guess that's called foreshadowing, because here I am 25 years later. But how do the two of you relate to the Disney Renaissance? So proud of you for sitting through that as a two-year-old. If I saw a two-year-old in a seat, I'd be very scared. Uh, unfortunately, I was born after the Disney Renaissance, but I still grew up with all of these movies. Um, and the Disney Renaissance is actually the first, you know, Disney series with, you know, less uh, racist depictions of people of color and even centering women of color as their leads, their princesses. Um, that's really, really important to me as a woman of color. Uh, not to mention that in college, I actually used to be a party princess in Colorado, so. Wow. Yeah. Well, now we got to ask which characters you dressed up as. I mean, you can't just drop that and not expect us to go deeper. <laughs> Any person of color besides Tiana. Mulan, Moana, Jasmine, the Gal Gadot Wonder Woman. Gotcha. A unicorn, a fairy. I love and that. And a deer. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, we, we've discussed this before, but the the whole Disney princess thing, I don't actually think cements itself until the Disney Renaissance because making princess movies kind of becomes the the norm, what they're striving to, whereas before it was, they, they made a variety. Yes, some of the more iconic ones are Snow White, are Sleeping Beauty, are Cinderella, but it's not until we get Little Mermaid Belle from Beauty and the Beast, mm -hmm. um, Mulan, Pocahontas, yeah. that it becomes, oh, now it's in their trade to actually make these types of movies. And the music transforms itself a little bit. I'm, I'm, I'm a theater kid. When I was growing up, I was a theater kid. And these are Broadway-style, I mean, musicals, yeah. whereas beforehand it was much, much classical music that they were doing i mean alan menken tim rice elton john name someone who's more theatrical than elton john these are the <laughs> people who are being brought in to make the music and you can so tell yeah and i'm so glad you brought up broadway because i also have a theater background i studied it in college and the one thing that i wanted to talk about when i came on this podcast was that for these renaissance era um, movies they bring in the Broadway system of making a story. So they have the introduction song, they have the classic I want, they have the big 11 o'clock number and the finale. And so it follows that storyline that you can really see on Broadway. Not to mention it starts Disney's, um, you know, fully into being on Broadway with musicals like The Lion King, Hunchback Notre Dame now, and literally any Disney movie is now probably on Broadway, right? Um, yes so many I just, Aladdin is the one 
Broadway show I have seen. Well, by that I mean on Broadway. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That you've w- seen the regionals, right? The what do you mean? Like regional theater when they tour, the um, touring cast. Well, I, well, I was I was in New York. I was in Broadway. The I think um, the the what the 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 bad dude, the sul- not the Sultan Jafar. Jafar <laughs> was the one from the original cast, and it might have been also from the movie, but. Um, I didn't always have the money for regional theater touring Broadway companies, mm. and the only reason I was able to go to Aladdin was because someone fronted me a good chunk of the money, like a friend who got a discount. Yeah. Um, but I want to. I've listened to many of these Broadway albums on repeat. I was actually listening oh to Aladdin, the Broadway cast recording uh. today, because I was... Um, these songs are, are more special to me yeah. than... Uh, and, and look, I've told you Cinderella is a masterpiece, and Bibbidi Bobbidi Boo is a masterpiece. But these songs are that it is. The, the, these these songs, I don't know. They, they they like do something in my heart. Yeah, that you're Bibbidi a Bobbidi Boo proud can't. of my boy kind of guy, right? Um, yes. <laughs> yeah, part of your world also <laughs> under the sea. <laughs> and I haven't even yeah, I mean, watched think... Little Mermaid yet. That's true. I think y'all have taken the right, the exact right entry points into the Disney Renaissance because the music is really driving these movies. And Christian, you listed off some of the key people like Alan Menken, like Elton John being brought in for Lion King, but another really important person to the Disney Renaissance who unfortunately passed away before he could play a larger part was Howard Ashman, who wins an Oscar for writing the song Beauty and the Beast with Alan Menken. And was uh, one of the not only a key musician and songwriter on Little Mermaid, Beauty and the Beast, and Aladdin, but also very involved behind the scenes with Disney. He and Mencken had created a little shop of horrors of all of the musicals and helped that become a success in New York and on, on stage. And so some of the new Disney leadership brings them in after this fallow period for Disney where they go through the 70s and the 80s, not as commercially successful, not as critically successful, and they're looking to revitalize things. So You've got you Michael like Eisner. Michael Eisner and one Jeffrey of Katzenberg. Killer Dillers. Do you know that it, term? I don't know if I do. <laughs> um, it was... Uh, Hadley, do you know the term? I know nothing about them but the name Killer Dillers. Okay, so these are people whom Barry Diller, who was chairman and CEO of Paramount, basically brought up under him. So Michael Eisner was the president of Paramount before leaving under Barry Diller, before leaving and becoming CEO of Disney. You've got Jeffrey Katzenberg, who then became a co-founder of DreamWorks. You have people who are working with Jerry Bruckheimer. You've got people who are um, Dara Kashrashahi, who is now the CEO of Uber. <laughs> and so these people who were all just under Barry Diller, who went on to become CEOs, presidents, heads of production at major companies within and outside of entertainment. Yeah. All of these very these people who are coming up under the right people in the industry then lead Disney into a new era. And the Renaissance not only ushers in great new movies, and we'll get back to Howard Ashman because I do want to speak on him a little bit more, but like a whole new era for Disney, not just in its movies, but they open Disney television animation and they start making far more animated shows for the Disney Channel. They're expanding at the parks. They're putting shows on stage. Hadley, as you mentioned, Beauty and the Beast is one of the first 
Disney Broadway Productions, I believe. So they already saw how easily that translated from the screen to the stage. It's a massive rebound for Disney in terms of its, of course, its financial profile, but even its cultural cachet. Now Disney is one of, if not the biggest like producers of entertainment in the world. And of course, that started 100 years ago, but the Renaissance is really what shot them into the stratosphere in this particular period, I guess, more recent history. And Howard Ashman is one of those people who, on the creative side of things, is really looked to as, like, if, if, if there was a creative architect, he is, he is the one behind the music of some of these movies. And if he had not passed away due to complications from AIDS, um, right before the release of Beating the Beast, actually, uh, he probably would have had a much larger role uh, in the ongoing Renaissance. But he really lays the blueprint with Alan Menken for the music guiding the way, uh, like you said, Hadley, making a more Broadway-style musical as opposed to what they had done in the past. As so many Disney movies had songs, of course, but this is something new entirely in approach and in quality. The Let's talk about the voice cast for the two movies before maybe going into the actual review about it. Um, because, believe it or not, the the person who voiced ariel in little mermaid was supposed to be the original voice of Belle, right jody benson jody benson they before, do that a lot yeah before they replaced her well not replaced her but eventually offered the part to Paige o'hara and you have some um you have a legend in angela lansbury playing mrs potts here in beauty and the beast oh man she passed away recently but as a theater kid there are people whom you know and angela lansbury is almost at the top of that yeah. list like it's her, Patty Lapone, Sutton Foster, like depending on when it is that she grew up. And outside of that, you also have Robbie Benson as the Beast. Let's just let's just go on to the Lion King because Lion King has has someone very important to us who is James Earl Jones. <laughs> the I think I mean even as an approach like. Beating the Beast is much more theatrical veterans. Yes. Bringing in people like Angela Lansbury, who had a long career on screen as well, but she is a little bit more well-known for her theatrical work. And you have these theater performers, trained singers coming in, whereas for The Lion King, you see a much more celebrity voice cast being brought in. Starting Matthew with James Earl Jones. Simba. <laughs> right. Like, we forget that. <laughs> I forgot that too, because he's in the new live-action one. He as, is? Yeah, he has like a a cameo, doesn't he? I don't know. He, he might. <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> Potentially. But yes, you also have Rowan Atkinson, the comedian. You have Whoopi Goldberg and Cheech Marin playing roles. Nathan Lane, speaking of uh, Broadway veterans, is Timon with another theatrical performer, Ernie Sabella as Pumbaa. And of course, Jeremy Irons as Scar in one of my favorite Disney villain performances ever. Uh, Hadley, would you like to to state your letterbox review for Lion King. <laughs> yeah, on Letterbox. <laughs> so I rewatched it obviously for the podcast and I said almost everyone in this movie are gay icons. Like so many. <laughs> I was watching it and I knew Scar was cuz be prepared, I mean. And then Simone and and Pumba. <laughs> I, I combined their names. <laughs> um, Simone and Pumba. Uh, the bird, the, uh, Zazu, 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 Zazu. Yeah, 100%. Yeah, we should. I feel like I, uh, I was gonna say I can't speak with authority on whether or not they're gay icons, but I can see the argument for sure. Yeah, <laughs> I think, yeah, the whole Renaissance is filled with gay icons. 
left and right. Yeah. <laughs> There's an entirely separate podcast we'll have to do, Christian, talking through the, the gay importance of the Disney, of the Renaissance, Disney Renaissance, Renaissance to the LGBT 100%. community. Should we talk about whether or not we like these movies? Do you want to start with the opening question? I'd love to, Christian. Before we do, just a, a quick mention, of course, we've been doing two movies a week as we've been looking at these different eras of Disney, and I chose these two for very, maybe obvious, but also very particular reasons. Number one, Beauty and the Beast, which is the third movie in this period for Disney, became a massive success and was the first Disney or first animated movie ever nominated for Best Picture at the Oscars. And to date, it was the only animated movie nominated when there was a limit of five nominees. Got five other nominations, including multiple for Best Original Song, but it was a huge financial and critical success. And then you have The Lion King, which is one of the biggest Disney financial successes of all time. Not only was The Lion King the biggest movie of 1994, but it was the biggest animated movie of all time to that point, which Disney has repeatedly surpassed themselves and some others have as well. But at the time, Lion King was a record-breaking success. And to this day, I think that's still partially why it's so beloved, because simply so many people saw this movie and watched it at an important part of their lives when they were growing up. And now... Almost 30 years later, it's it's still a foundational Disney film for a lot of people. So those are why I picked those two. In terms of the other movies in the Disney Renaissance, we have The Little Mermaid, The Rescuers Down Under, Aladdin, Pocahontas, The Hunchback of Notre Dame, Hercules, Mulan, and Tarzan, rounding things out. So do you two feel like I chose the right two, or would you make an argument about maybe fitting in a different one? The only one that I could think of... well. I think if you hadn't chosen these two, the, I think these are the correct ones to pick. Tarzan and Tarzan and Aladdin are the only ones that I think you can make an argument for as the most representative of this era. Yeah, I believe these two are definitely the right pick for the podcast because of their significance. But I think that Hunchback is the most underrated. Hunchback Disney. is incredibly underrated. Yeah. You know what else is underrated? Treasure Planet. I think I mentioned <laughs> Treasure Planet every episode of this month. <laughs> Gotta bring it up one more time. <laughs> and next week we do our top five. So we'll see if it appears one more, once more, shall we say, on this month here. So Christian and Hadley, I turn now to you. Beauty and the Beast, directed by Gary Trisdale and Kirk Wise, from a screenplay by Linda Wolverton, and a story from an enormous group of Disney story <laughs> artisans. And The Lion King was directed by Roger Allers and Rob Minkoff with a screenplay by Irene Mecki, Jonathan Roberts, and once again, Linda Wolverton. And again, an enormous amount of people working on the story. Those folks want to get a quick mention too before we get into our review. So my opening question for the both of you is less about these two movies specifically and sort of wrapping up a part of the conversation we started the episode with and segueing into the reviews of the movies themselves. Do you feel like the Disney Renaissance at large shaped you as a movie watcher and as a person who loves movies? And I'm curious what impact you feel like it had on you and how these particular movies played a role in that. Do you want to take it? I'm thinking this is such a tough question because they all came out before I was born, so I grew up watching them. And I don't know if there were any movies that I watched before them that would change anything about how I saw movies. It, okay. It, it's almost like the classic Disney, like the golden and silver age of Disney are the massive stained glass paintings that you would see in a church. Whereas I think that 
these Disney Renaissance movies are the sermon itself. <laughs> and that's the closest I can come to a comparison. Undoubtedly, yes, I did watch Peter Pan. I did watch Cinderella. I did watch um, Bambi and Pinocchio and Snow White when I was growing up. But these 90s movies were different. Like, they Broadway almost invites you in to sing along and beforehand you would marvel at the beauty of the music but it wasn't like a come here and be a part of this world you have the disney renaissance being i think one of the most commercial it's it's one of the most audience engaging parts of it and they're all so short and the story moves along so briskly There's also so much story. Like, we talked about how in Snow White, the story could make up 10 minutes of the the movie, but it's um, a little over an hour long because they want to focus on the animation. No, there's so much story to put in here. And I think that it also taught me about plot and about characters with personalities. I mean, look at... Oh, man. (laughs) Look at Lumiere. Look at yeah. yeah, yeah. Look at Mrs. Potts. Look at Chip. Um, look at Nala. Mm-hmm. It's there. There's there was a personality there that was not as present in previous Disney movies throughout the ensemble alongside the leads. Yeah, and I love that you brought up plot too because going back to my theater degree. Um, Early movie musicals and musicals, how they were written was a song was created and the plot was created around that song. But around this time um, and in the 50s, 60s for Broadway musicals is when they really start introducing having a real plot instead of just being fun little dance movies with a, you know, kind of construed plot. Like I was watching Pinocchio earlier and it's a good movie, but you're like, how did we get here? Like, there's a whale suddenly. <laughs> uh, it, it, it's really an, um, a hat on top of a hat movie, Pinocchio. Yeah. It's like, what else can be added on? The foxes come back for some reason. I don't know. But, uh, and this I is mean, some from someone who likes Pinocchio. I was going to say, I feel like Pinocchio is one of the more sturdy narratives of the golden age. Just in that it's a clear A to B to C to D, but I know what you're saying about the plot of these movies. Watching Beauty and the Beast and The Lion King, they there was a lot more plot being told, and I it just is a different era of Disney movie. I think while you sacrifice some of the fun that can be found in the earlier narrative formula, which is less story heavy and more expressive and uh, creative at times in terms of how they fill the air with showing off the animated work of the of the Disney team, you do not get to tell these bigger stories. And Beauty and the Beast and The Lion King feel far more, uh, maybe I'm a little bit, I don't know about this word, but more epic than the movies we've covered previously, where something like Cinderella, you know, it's a wonderful movie, but she's primarily confined to one house for most of the movie. And she goes to the castle for... Uh, for the ball of course but meets the prince and then he's out of the movie until the end and he reconnects with her we're we're talking about our opinions on the movie now right both these movies rock Beauty and the Beast absolutely is gorgeous and wonderful and I sat there watching Be Our Guest and I thought cinema 
This is cinema. <laughs> I had the opportunity to watch it at the Academy Museum on 70mm, and I have never felt so alive. <laughs> I've never felt more stupid that I did not partake in that experience because that sounds incredible. $10 tickets, come on. Th- that's the, oh man, I am I am actually jealous because beauty and, oh, what are we even, what are, what are we talking about? What's, what's the outline? There's a scene in Beauty and the Beast that is, when there is a reel compiled about, about, about the history of movies, it needs to be in there. Do you want me to talk about it or do, are we following the, 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 whatever it is? I like the performances. I... I, I'm not always one to be beholden to the outline Christian. So are you going to talk about the ballroom dance? Yes, sequence? I am going to talk about the ballroom <laughs> dance scene. Do you, want, do you want me to tee you up with some background or have you got that? I, I've got, I've got it. So okay. it was the, it was one of the first ever moments in which computer generated imagery was used to completely generate a 3d rendering within animation because previously computer generated images were used to print out something that you would then animate over and so it was still 2d you didn't have the full depth and dimension you could have and uh, it's only really used in that ballroom scene i mean it is to help out with some of the color and shading in the rest of the in the rest of the movie but when bella and the beast go in there and uh, the camera you know the the mythical camera that exists with an animated movie it does like a 360 around them and showcases the depth of it and it is definitely like a show-off like something that a master director you know in in the past epic musical would have done and it looks incredible because you can tell that the images is are different but it's still anchored around the two of them dancing and angela lansbury is singing beauty and the beast like overlaying all of it and it's like it's incredible yeah i think the the final piece to the disney renaissance that we haven't talked about yet is just the technological advancement which is a it's a bit of a blessing and a curse right because we see uh computer generated uh, imagery and animation come into the picture with the great mouse detective which just barely presages the renaissance it's 1986 and there's a in the climactic sequence there's a they're climbing up big ben the clock tower and a lot of the gears and things in there were rendered in with 3d animation which was the first time disney had blended those two forms of animation together and you start to see it really take off within the renaissance the lion king features some digital animated work as well alongside the the traditional and allowing them to scale up their ambition, not just with the environments that they can generate, but like you said, Christian, with the way that they can use the quote unquote camera, the way that they can move around the space is another way that they help make these stories and these movies feel bigger and how they can appeal, of course, to us watching it as kids where we're just like, wow, this is amazing. But how then they can also impress us as adults as we realize the difficulty that is happening behind the camera, behind the pen and the pencil and behind the whatever else you want to say that's, you know, creating these movies. And it's one of those times I, and I previously mentioned, or at least hinted that I was going to talk about the scene during our Snow White episode where I don't always care about innovation because I think that I, it needs to, um, it, it needs to actually make me happy or make me cheer in order for me to care that someone, you know, innovated it. This is something where 
even what this came out in 1991 even 32 years later it feels new like it feels like beautiful and it's it's one of those where i i don't have a list of my favorite movies from 1991 i'm not gonna say that this deserved to win best picture over silence of the lambs but it almost feels like <laughs> good job that this was recognized as one of the best things that had come out in 1991. I'm a little bit partial to Silence of the Lambs, perhaps. But yeah, I'm really glad to see this honored up there. Uh, speaking of Beauty and the Beast, Hadley, I want to ask you, I love the opening of this movie. And like you said, it is, it is using that traditional Broadway, let's get the whole chorus in here to start singing. I'd love to know your thoughts on rewatching the opening, just because I know I had a great time and I'd love to know how you felt. I love the opening song because Belle is complaining about how horrible her life is openly in front of all of the people in the town who then <laughs> tell her what a horrible person she is. Um, and because she likes to read. <laughs> because she likes to read. The how horrors, dare she? <laughs> the horrors of reading. Um... But it's so well done to the way that it just moves you along from person to person. And like you said, it's a big production. It gets everyone involved. You get to meet so many people in such a short amount of time. People who, while they may not have a lot of screen time or a lot of lines, they're so integral to the story, which I don't think happened before in earlier Disney works because you have these big crowd ballroom scenes, but none of the people in there have stories or lives that you are particularly drawn to. I mean, that's that's true. They were, they were very self-contained. Mm-hmm. Part of that might have been budget reasons, and yet here is where it's like, yeah, it, it feels like you, you know, paid the money to have a bunch of extras be there. Mm-hmm. Beauty and the Beast cost $25 million, which nowadays animated movies are being made for five times of that but still 25 million dollars when you look back and know that snow white itself was made for like just over a million obviously inflation comes for us all but it's yeah definitely stepping up how much these movies cost and we're seeing that work on screen i i, I do too love the the comedy of that opening where Belle, of course is ripping on all the people in her town and she's she's too cool she wants to get out of her town like a true punk rock girl and everybody there is also like why is this chick so weird like what is her deal um, and of course, Gaston identifies he, he would like to still marry her because she's also the prettiest girl in town, which good job, Belle, the al- almost the original Manic Pixie Dream Girl, but she's got a personality and goals and sights and dreams and all that. But what can you do? But I love the just the establishing the sort of Broadway feeling that this movie is going to have. Uh, even thinking back to Pinocchio, which starts with When You Wish Upon a Star, a, an eternal timeless classic, but it's a much like slower lovely little song and bell the opening song of, of this is just a much grander affair it's also funny because the the lyrics are i want adventure in the great wide somewhere and she marries beast and their spoiler alert i guess it's <laughs> so <laughs> are you telling me in a movie called beauty and the beast that beauty ends up with the Wait, beast they end up at the end together? <laughs> like her adventure is like Marrying Beast, it feels weird, and yet also... She has a library in her. Yo, that library is yeah. massive. Yeah. That's the, that's the Great Wide Somewhere right there, the library room. <laughs> uh, I, I, she, she, 
You know, she she wanted the castle. Yeah. She got the castle. I think it's more of that, you know, when you're like, oh, I wish I could just move to a cabin in the woods and live off the land, but nobody ac actually wants to live off the land. I think it's that <laughs> same concept for Belle. Oh, man. Uh, <laughs> So real. Belle gets to live off the land in that she has servants who will work for her and help her live off the land. Wait, let's let we we should we should talk about the opening song in uh, in the Lion King because the yeah we should because the it best rips. Song ever. It, <laughs> Circle of Life. It it look the inspiration they got. For, or they were going off of was Lawrence of Arabia and how to make the Lion King. Yeah. And they they actually brought in lions to the studios in order to help people draw because the animals weren't going to be anthropomorphic. They were mm -hmm. going to actually be walking on four legs. And this opening scene, the sun comes up. It shines the light on the entire Pride Lands. All of the animals raise their heads almost in recognition You've got Simba as like baby Jesus being <laughs> being like lifted up by Rashiki as his proud parents are nearby, and you are thinking, "Damn, yeah, like where? This is the opening. Where are we going from here? It is it, it is a perfect opening song for a movie." I will say, and on this rewatch, the opening song made me cry. But spoiler alert: when Mufasa died, didn't. <laughs> So that's that's the power of the song. I I really love the opening of The Lion King as well. I I posit it may just be the best single opening to any of these Disney movies, partly because it also like it is ambitious and it knows it knows that like the filmmakers know they're swinging for the fences because the movie opens on that famous note that so many of us know from trying to repeat it as kids the no we all know that and it goes right into the all of these animals moving towards pride rock for the birth of simba like you're saying christian and then as we get like it's the circle and then the song ends circle of life boom the lion king uh it's just like the way that they dropped the title literally on like a mic drop it, it it's it's bold and it totally works even beauty and the beast they have the sort of stained glass opening of the enchantress coming to the castle and putting the curse upon the prince that turns him into the beast and then they put up beauty and the beast the title with the sort of mysterious music in the background before that fades into bell the opening song and the lion king is much more audacious and i totally respect it well the, the music for both is we can point out and we still know the lyrics to a uh, circle of life or we know the lyrics to be our guest or we know <laughs> the lyrics to hakuna matata or we know the lyrics to um um be uh, beauty and uh, beauty and the beast i mean yeah. tale as old as time all that good stuff it is it is i am partial to beauty and the beast <laughs> I, I i i looked at it and i am partial to beauty and the beast because I think that the characters in Beauty and the Beast are much more three-dimensional. I think that the characters in Lion King are very, are there to service the story. Yeah. Um, it, it, it's almost like the Lion King is trying to be a great movie, whereas Beauty and the Beast is trying to be a great experience. Yeah. I, I, don't, I, don't, I don't know what your thoughts are on that. And I, I don't just want to pit movies against each other, but when you were, when you're reviewing two movies a week, you kind of think, which one did I have a better time at? I... 
I don't know. I almost flip that where I feel like the Lion King is more interested in being like a big budget experience and Beauty and the Beast is more interested in telling a, a rich, complete story. Um, but I also love both of these movies and don't don't know where I preference one. Hadley, do you have any strong opinions either way? I, it's so hard because I think they serve such different purposes and I don't want to diss either one of them because I think they're both amazing. But I think I agree with Christian a little bit more just because Beauty and the Beast has such much of a bigger plot line um, with those supporting characters who you want to root for. Um, not that um, Lion King doesn't have you know, very strong supporting characters, but I feel like um, they're all very, everyone around um, Simba is very serving to him. Well, in Beauty and the Beast, everyone around Belle, even when they're on her side, they're still rooting for themselves. Like, um, you know, Mrs. Potts, she just wants to be a human again yeah. uh, with her son. Mrs. Potts has so many children. We see the cupboard. She has so many kids, but she only cares about Chip. She only cares about Chip. And also, why did the Beast age, but none of the servants or the helpers around the castle? The Beast the beast didn't age, did he? Yeah, he was 11 when he got the rose. And he's a oh, full-grown man at the end. She says by the end of your 21st birthday yeah. or whatever that, like when the last petal falls. Also, true. can we talk about how rude it is for a stranger to show up on a child's doorstep and, like, get mad at them for not inviting them into their house? Like, stranger danger, am I right? Come on. Where's the, where's the Beast's parents? Yeah. I mean, even just one. They probably where, died. Where? <laughs> well, it's a love. Okay, here's the thing. Was Chip alive at the beginning of the curse, or did Mrs. Potts, you know, with Mr. Potts, have a tiny Rest in peace. teapot? Oh. These are the deep <laughs> questions. We'll, we'll never have answers. <laughs> <laughs> this is a different podcast. I think in comparing the two of them narratively, What's interesting is Beauty and the Beast is about Belle and, and the Prince, or you know, Beauty and the Beast. It's about the two of them. It's about their their love story. It's a romantic movie about these two people falling in love. One of them basically learning to be human again and therefore becoming human again. And one of them getting to go on this adventure, so to speak. She gets locked up somewhere else, basically. But she gets to experience something new and she is changed by it. Whereas The Lion King is about, a is lion about the king, king of the lions. <laughs> and it's, it's much more Hamlet. of a hero's journey. Yeah, it's a, a sort of retelling of Hamlet, really about Simba and about his story, about how as a child he has this horrible moment where he loses his father and his uncle blames him and he runs away. And then he grows into a man or an adult lion, shall we say, and returns to claim the responsibility that he once forsook. So there's even a, just an interesting... A difference in narrative philosophy between these two. One is a love story, one is a hero's journey. This is not at all a knock against either movie. They are rushing through this story. Lion King? Both. Oh, yeah. They are rushing through this story. It's like, they need to get to the next song quickly. Both. No, that's what I realized when I was watching Lion King. We, like, Simba was just about to go back to fight Scar. I pressed the remote on accident, and it was like 20 minutes left, and I was like, oh, wow. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, 
both of these movies are shorter than 90 minutes with the credits. So Beauty and the Beast And the credits in Lion King are 10 minutes long. I checked. I'm like, damn. On on Disney Plus, to be fair, there's a bunch of stuff at the end that's like on like shouting out, doing credits for all the people who dubbed it in different languages. So take Disney Plus with a grain of salt. But yes, the, the Beauty and the Beast is still in that between 70 and 80 minute runtime sweet spot that most of these Disney movies are. And that's what's interesting about them is they're they're still made with a degree of narrative economy like all of the prior Disney movies were. But instead of having this open space where the animation and creativity gets to rule, there is a greater emphasis on these Broadway-style music numbers and a more filled-out plot. And that I mean, they're still short movies uh, as far as movies generally go. Um, and animated movies have only gotten to become longer over the years as computer animation has sort of changed the amount of labor that goes into making the movies. Not to say that they're not working as hard as they did now, but it's easier to use computers and software animation when before you were animating literally frame by frame, drawing out how the characters would move and painting the backgrounds. So yeah, still short movies, but it's, it's again, as we're talking about how things change in the Renaissance, you see the changing of priorities for Disney, but it does mean the movies move at a breakneck pace, which to me has aged pretty well. It, it's there, There's no dead air. It's great. I love a good fast movie, though. I do, too. I, yeah, like these three-hour movies, like they're good, but there are certain points where you're like, okay, get to the next scene. <laughs> Anything you want to shout out? Anything you want to criticize? I don't, this is a safe space. No, I don't want to say any particular movie because I feel like every three-hour movie that I've seen, no matter how much I loved it, there were scenes where I was like, okay, let's speed it up. <laughs> and I will say every time I rewatch it, it's different scenes, but there are certain. The um, I, I, I make fun of it a lot despite the fact that I actually really, really respect the movie. Lawrence of Arabia, I was like... <laughs> But that I, had an intermission. Yes, and you better, you, you best believe I took it. I, my eyes were like bleeding. My digestive system was on fire because I had just eaten a sandwich. And I am like, oh my goodness, how much time is left? And I was only an hour in and it was a three hour and 40 minute movie. And I'm like, oh, and it, ooh, I was like, guys, come on, start the war, start the war. We, we, we can't keep doing this, guys. Have you seen 1900? I have never seen. Isn't oh that a five-hour movie? It's a five-hour movie. Have you seen 1900? No. I, I don't want to watch 1900. <laughs> um, yeah, but you know, a little bit of of um, Bertolucci talk. Little Bertolucci, little Robert De Niro, Gerard Depardieu. Yeah, looking it up, uh, the good people at Letterboxd say 317 minutes, which what's, uh, we get 60, 120, 180, 240, four hours and 40 minutes. I mean, that's no, not five hours. Come on. <laughs> no, it's just shy of it. Just JF, shy. JFK, too, the extended cut. Oh, I haven't. I, I've seen the theatrical for JFK. I don't imagine, I don't the know if I'll watch the version. The airplane yes. version of JFK? Yeah. Speaking of airplane versions, I had to watch Beauty and the Beast on an airplane. And had to is uh, really a stretch because, of course, I didn't have to, but I did. I watched Beauty and the Beast on the airplane. And I, I still almost cried <laughs> right as a flight attendant was taking trash from the woman sitting next to me. So they almost got to partake in a special moment for all three of us. But alas, uh, I did not actually shed a tear for shame. But 
It's a really uh, emotionally affecting movie that I watched on a plane. The best characters in Lion King are Timon and Pumbaa. Say I'm wrong. Um, you're wrong. <laughs> <laughs> I think we're both rooting for Scar here, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. I mean, Christian, Christian, you ought to know by this point, if you invite me to tell you that you're wrong, I'll take that chance. I mean, you'll be like, Scott, free money is good, right? And I'll be like, no, it's free money. No, no, Christian. What, what, what are your I, favorite characters in Lion King? Here's, here's what I will say. Nathan Lane is an absolute national treasure. I hope Nathan Lane is, uh, I hope we build a pyramid for him when he dies. He is uh, a true American icon. And he and Ernie Sabella as Timon and Pumbaa are hilarious. I don't, I don't necessarily love their sort of pop culture shtick that the writers have created for them, where they're quoting other movies and referencing things in their dialogue. Was it after, um, was it after, what is it, with Jasmine and, Aladdin. <laughs> was it made after Aladdin or was it? Yes, Aladdin's 92. I think they were trying to follow um, Robin Williams' take on the genie. The Absolutely. Yeah. Probably. I mean, probably even though they're not. Not not in the not in the acting style, but in the pop they, culture reference. Pop culture reference, yeah. probably. Um, because I'm, I'm not gonna lie, there, there there was a time when one of the first songs, well, the first song that almost always comes to mind isn't really Circle of Life, it's Hakuna Matata, and up there, probably right after Circle of Life, is um, when they're trying to distract the hyenas and they they dress up in drag. Yeah. That I, I for some reason that's like lodged in my brain because it's so funny. That's it lasts I mean, forty seconds. They, and then surprise. Saying they dress up in drag is I feel like it's a stretch. <laughs> like, he literally says, "What do you want sure. me to do? Dress in drag and do the hula." Those are his <laughs> exact <laughs> words. It's, it's loose drag. That's fair, I suppose. That that's also like he says that and it immediately cuts. There is not a second of dead air. It's like, what do you want me to do? Dress and drag and wear the hula? Ha la la la. He was just looking for an excuse to dress in um, a hula skirt. Absolutely, it's okay, Timon. Be who you want to be. I think thinking about favorite characters in that movie, it is hard not to say Scar, partially because Jeremy Irons. Is you don't see his face; it's only his voice, and yet he is still devouring scenery like a, like a hungry hyena. I mean, every single line and delivery he adds on seconds to it, just really letting it linger and mulling over the words and 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 giving it this syrupy but venomous tone to it. He is so so good as a Disney villain. And yes, be prepared, Hadley. You said it's one of your favorite songs. One of mine as well. Such a fantastic number. And I just, Jeremy Irons' whole performance here is fantastic. Where he even, I don't even say he like overshadows the movie. It's not something like that either. It's its just a perfect vocal performance for this role. It's so good. So I, I'm obliged to say Scar. I mean, but I like Timon and Pumbaa, obviously. Well, I don't like the fact that as I've gotten older, I've you know, identified more and more with the Disney villains than I have the, oh, the okay. heroes of this movie. Do you see a lot of Gaston in you? Not Gaston, <laughs> but okay. <laughs> there was a line that Gaston said where he's like, how do you even read this? There's not any pictures in it. And I deeply related to that. Okay. But Some I don't think, I don't agree with his ideas on women. <laughs> um... 
I, some retrograde perspectives there for yeah, sure. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> okay, Scar is the better villain in like all forms when compared yeah. to Gaston. But that that's also like the beauty of Beauty and the Beast. It's not even a Gaston is just a nuisance. Well, like the villain in Beauty and the Beast is not Gas like it is Gaston, but it's the ideals that Gaston represents as well as the rest of the town. I, I think that's a fantastic point. And, and to me, it speaks to the thematic richness of Beauty and the Beast, which has a lot of things come together at the end. And that's what gets me to almost cry watching this movie. I'm sure I would if I weren't in an airplane situation. The, the resonance of the ending is, is pretty timeless to me. From the, the not-in-your-face statement they're making with the way that Gaston is easily able to rile up this this town of people and get them to try to go kill the beast when we've spent a whole movie with him watching him be reformed and changed by the love of another but also just the the simple story of this this person who is so beastly he's turned into a vicious creature and watching him find his humanity again under all that all that fur and that anger and those claws and that redemptive story is is so beautifully told and i, I think redemption to me and obviously in a lot of movies it can be done pretty cheaply where it feels like you determined that this character had to be redeemed one way or another and so you kind of just lazily got from point a to b to illustrate this theme but beauty and the beast in 80 or fewer you know, quick minutes gives a pretty powerful story of redemption for the beast and we really see how affected he is by bell and the relationship that they build also though when and and this is just one of the greatest when when you when you watch the ending of this movie when gaston is attacking the beast because he thinks he has lost bell the beast does not fight back he screams in pain and then just lets himself continually be hit and pushed and kicked out of the roof and it's until he sees bell running up to get him that is when he fights back and he doesn't even kill Gaston, I, I think, isn't Gaston killed by, like, he, he, is it that he swings and misses, or is it lightning? Because he falls, doesn't he? Right. The, the, the beast does not drop him off the side, side brings him back over the balcony, balcony sees Belle and runs to her, but he has to climb up to this other balcony to get to her. Gaston tries to chase after the beast, stabs him, and then falls after he's, he's trying to sort of, you know, get himself free. And so, again, you see the point illustrated without... Without any dialogue, really. Like, it's just, it's all action showing how, the, like, Gaston's quest is what does him in. It's what takes him down. It's his own hubris that kills him. And this, this irrational desire to kill this thing that he does not know. And the beast's willingness to let him live and go to Bell is what ultimately saves him, too. It's, it's this human choice that he makes, despite being still in this appearance of a beast letting gaston live going to the person who he loves what, what what's more human than uh than allowing something to to go like letting something go to instead go to something that you actually want to be with a person that you love uh we we all can experience that in one way or another if we you know we can all relate to that in one way or another and again all action but na like really nailing the themes that they're trying to pull together at the end of the movie you know I, I need to know, what are our thoughts on Be Our Guest, the song? 
Because I saw it, and I melted. It's <laughs> such a fun song. It's that 11 o'clock number. Like, I was talking, it's everybody, and it's big, and it's spoofy, and afterwards, they take a bow, and you're like, well, this was the best, like, movie ever. <laughs> big shout-out to Jerry Orbach here, who's playing Lumiere, and in a... <laughs> A French accent we can all bring to mind at any point on any day because we all watched Beat and the Beast a bunch of times as kids and we know exactly what Lumiere sounds like. It's his true moment to shine singing this song. But again, it's just a show-stopping number, so to speak, you know, using this this Broadway parlance. It's the, the big, elaborate, fun song and dance number in the middle of the movie, and it's a blast and a half. Shout out to David Ogden Steers playing Clockworth, or Cogsworth, not Clockworth, Cogsworth as well. He is quite funny throughout the movie, and he gets some good moments to be our guest. Beauty and the Beast earned six Academy Award nominations, one of which was for yes. Best Picture, but yes. three of them were for Best Song. There is only one other animated movie that has received six Academy Award and, uh, nominations. Do we know what that is? It's another tale of love. Another tale of love. Wally. It's, it's Wally. Although Wally earned its six Academy Award nominations in individual categories, and three, yeah, there were like three for Best Original Song for Beauty and the Beast, one for Best Picture, one for Score, and one for third thing. Was <laughs> Wally Best Picture? Wally was not nominated. No, for Best Wally was not. And it is one of the great travesties of our time. It's on my, it's on my top four in Letterboxd. Wally's on your top four on Letterboxd? Yeah. Oh, happy. <laughs> um. Yeah, the only other animated films nominated for Best Picture were Toy Story 3 and Up, which were Disney, of course, Not but Pixar. Disney Disney Pixar. Late 2000s. Oh, I think it was 09 and 10. Yeah. Um, I mean, silently pulling for Across the Spider-Verse to get a nomination this year, mm. odds are less and less likely. I think Barbie. <laughs> I don't know. Barbie will, I, Barbie will get nominated. It will, because of the sheer number of movies that got released this, this year. Uh, Oppenheimer will get nominated. Oh, yeah. Those are, honestly, those are the two that I know will get nominated. Like, you could make an argument that everything else will not. Well, I'm Just Ken is nominated for a Grammy. I'm Just Ken is nominated. Barbie has four songs nominated for the Grammy, which is fueling this, as we're talking about the Oscars and how Beauty and the Beast did, I mentioned something a few weeks ago on the show, I'm pretty sure, about how these days, a lot of times, movies will submit one song for Best Original Song Consideration. And speaking of Disney, we saw this come up with Encanto, where they submitted Dos Orguitas as their nominee for the category, and it ultimately got nominated. But We Don't Talk About Bruno became this enormous hit, but they didn't nominate it for Best Original Song because of this theory that if you nominate more than one song, you lose your opportunity to get both of them nominated, and they cancel each other out. And I thought there was actually a rule that they made that you can only submit one song per movie, but that's not actually a rule. It's just been a more recent strategy. And I really am curious to see if Barbie becomes the first movie in a very long time to get multiple songs nominated at the Oscars because they've got, I mean, Dance the Night was nominated for an Oscar, as was What Was I Made For? And it's nominated uh, for a Grammy. Grammy. Yes, for Grammy. Thank you. And uh, one more that I can't remember uh, right now, but we'll see. We will see. And I mean, La Land got two song nominations for um, for the auditioned and oh, for yeah. City of Stars. Right. right. I, I think so audition is the better song. I'm just gonna time. say it. Yeah. City of Stars won, but audition's the better yeah. song. Boy, Ryan Gosling, the moment now, the moment then, and the moment forever. 
Beauty and the Beast and the Lion King is what here, what here we are here to discuss. I'm running out of my losing my ability to speak. <laughs> but any anything else that we wanted to mention specifically about these movies? We've talked about the stories, we've talked about the themes, we've talked about the characters, we've talked about the songs. There's so much more that we could say, I'm sure, but I am curious. What else? What's that thing that's in the back of your mind where you just have to get it out about these two movies? I researched the history of Beauty and the Beast um, because I was interested. And we all know it's based off of the French tale, The Beauty and the, the Beast. I'm not going to say the French pronunciation. <laughs> la, be la, la Belle et la Bête. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but some scholars think that it's actually based off of Cupid and Psyche, which is a Latin tale, which is a lot more uh, dark and dirty, and it's about... Um, a woman who's being forced to marry this man and Venus the goddess sends Cupid to go and um, save him her and Cupid actually falls in love with this woman and so he takes her to his castle and then marries her and then every night he goes and he um, makes love to her with the lights off and everything, and she's and he says, "You can't see me. That's the rule of this marriage: is you just can't see me." And <laughs> her curiosity gets the better of her, so she uh, gets a candle to burn him, and then he flies away because he's so hurt that she didn't trust him because he actually was beautiful because he's Cupid, and so then Belle has to um, go through this. Not Belle the psyche has to go psyche. through this series of tasks to win his affection back. And then, um, unfortunately, Cupid does get injured, but Jupiter saves him, and they live happily ever after. Wow. This is, I, did not, I don't know what you were going to say beforehand, but that's not, like, on my bingo card was not that. I had to research, like, five different articles because none of them could get the story straight. Like, they kept changing different people around, and I was like, what even is happening here? I, I mean, Beauty and the Beast was also made in, like, the 1940s. Like, there was a live action. I don't know. Yeah, it was, I think, a live action. Yeah. Yes, there, it was yeah, live action. Yeah, it was action. a film made by Jean Cocteau, who was the filmmaker. That there. costuming, though. Was... And what, what was it that, that in one of the previous adaptations of Beauty and the Beast, there were enchanted objects, but here they actually decided to make them anthropomorphic. Mm -hmm. And so that's, honestly, like when you, she first enters the castle and you see that Lumiere and Cloxworth are, or Cloxworth are there and it, like the eyes pop up. Yeah. That's, that's kind of what I love, like that, mm -hmm. that realization. Um, Beauty and the Beast, last thing I'll say is that they didn't think Beauty and the Beast was going to be as successful as Pocahontas, so some of the animators were actually working on Pocahontas more when they were working on these two at the same time. That's like Shrek. Do you know the lore about Shrek? I don't know the lore about Shrek. They created Shrek to be a punishment for all the animators who weren't doing so hot. So it was supposed to be this big box office failure, but now it's Shrek. It's yeah, I, I like Shrek two more. Okay, <laughs> but still, yeah, it's I mean, well, they wouldn't have Shrek two if Shrek one bomb, Christian. On, Christian. 
it's you know it's where the, a lot of these animated movies get made is that there's big huge teams of people working on them and there's a lot of different stories about Disney animators working on one movie and then going to work on another you see a lot of similar names pop up in the you know the different uh, you know areas of the credits you can see directors of future Disney movies in the credits for Beauty and the Beast people who would go on to be directors of full productions but working in character animation or you know, layouts and backgrounds and those sort of things um yeah the the behind the scenes on these animated movies can get so hectic and crazy but it's amazing to see it all come together and uh, pocahontas unfortunately is is not as well regarded as beauty and the beast and obviously didn't come out until a few years later so it's, it's got the show song, how... song it does it, it's got it, does. it has i think some of the best songs because yeah yeah i don't know if I've ever seen it. I think I've seen it in school. Really? And I barely remember it if I have. Well, not a great place for it to play in school, as historical accuracy is not going for Pocahontas. Yes. And then the second one, they try and correct the historical accuracy, but the first yeah. one had already done its damage, so it's just a bad movie overall. No, I, if I, I, I remember my teacher printing out the lyrics to one of the Pocahontas songs. I, I, I don't know. Some I, I think it's about like the... the the, the, gold? The, the gold. It's I the gold. love that song. It's so bad. It's so bad because the lyrics are horrible, but it's so catchy. <laughs> um, I, I, I'll also I'll say two more things about Beauty and the Beast. One of the reasons that um, it also leaves a lasting legacy is because it's the first ever Disney animated movie where they had a script. Because beforehand, it was storyboarding, and that's how they would get their idea. They would just write the script based on what the storyboard was stating. Here, they actually said, let's find the story first and then animate it based around the story also they were on such a tight schedule because they rejected the initial concept for it that instead of the four years they only had i think two two and a half years mm -hmm. that the final dance scene in beauty and the beast is just redrawn the dance scene from sleeping beauty it's the exact same movements just redrawn with Belle and beast yeah, I mean, again, just speaking to kind of bring things back to the beginning, like they had a more serious adaptation that wasn't working. And so they brought in Howard Ashman and Alan Menken, who had written the, the songs for Little Mermaid, to turn Beauty and the Beast into this Broadway-style musical. And literally the rest is history. We have – it gets the Best Picture nomination. They obviously create a ton of musicals. And even when it's not – musicals like Tarzan has that Phil Collins soundtrack that basically acts as a musical, even though the characters themselves aren't necessarily singing. And it totally reshapes the, the rest of the Disney Renaissance, which of course became this incredibly important period in Disney's history. And it's one that I was very glad to revisit to discuss these movies. And I'll keep exploring Christian because of course, next week on the show, we will be wrapping up this month by talking through our top five Disney movies and also reviewing the new film, Wish, which is coming out next week uh, around the Thanksgiving holiday. So hopefully we can catch that. And or I guess it's coming out at the end of this week. So it'll be the one that is widely seen during the Thanksgiving holiday. And hopefully a lot of people will get to check that out while they listen to our top five as well. Wait, Hadley, are you going, are you going home for Thanksgiving? No, I'm here. Oh, do you want to come over? <laughs> You're inviting me on the podcast? Yeah, why not? Yeah, I'll think about it. Cool. <laughs> wow. <laughs> My plans aren't cemented yet, but... Cool. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Wrapping up the show. All right, Hadley. They're going to be jealous. They're here. not all invited. <laughs> I'm like, wait. 
maybe doing Thanksgiving dinner with Christian. You might get wrapped into another recording of this show just incidentally. <laughs> but of course, thanks for joining us. It was great to have you on. Is there anything out there that you want to, you know, let people know where they can find you, be it social media or a creative pursuit that you have? Like, a, you know, if there's anything like a, a movie you've made that people can watch or a blog that they can see writing, anything at all, would love to know what pe where people can check more. I do have a few projects, but I can't talk about them yet. Uh, but if you follow my social media, it's Hadley.Vogler. That's V as in Victor, O-G-L-E-R. That's uh, probably my username on anything ever or Hadley Ever After on Letterboxd. Yeah. I'm pretty proud of that one. Disney 100! <laughs> I was gonna make, I was gonna make a DCP vlog. Um, I was gonna do the Disney College program and that was gonna be my vlog name. Um, Hadley did not like Saltburn. I did not. Okay. Have you seen Got Saltburn? It. I have not seen Saltburn yet. Christian obviously has, but I'm You're a big waiting. Disney fan, probably should Stop here. <laughs> not very. In the middle of the Venn yeah, diagram, yeah, yeah. it's quite thin. Uh, on that, I can imagine. Uh, yeah, um, I'm done. That's it for me. <laughs> well, Christian, you are done. So are the ads on the video you have playing in the background, and so is the episode of this show. So, listeners, if you're out there, thanks so much for listening along to our discussion here, Beauty and the Beast and The Lion King. We greatly appreciate your listening support. And there are a few things that you can do to continue to support the show. Number one, please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and give us a rating or a review. Helps us grow on different platforms and reach new listeners. And we just appreciate those five-star reviews coming in. So please subscribe, rate, review, all that fun stuff. You can also send us an email at cinemaontappodcast at gmail.com where we are regularly checking that email inbox looking for listener feedback. Whether you have an idea for a movie you want covered on the show or perhaps an entire idea for a, a cinematic keg that we could tap or hey, maybe you just have a Disney movie you love that we haven't talked about yet on the show and you want it to get shouted out during our top five next week. We'd love to get listener feedback for that. So again, that's cinemaontappodcast at gmail.com. You can also follow myself and the show on Twitter, Christian on Instagram, and the both of us on Letterboxd, along with Hadley, where we are regularly rating and reviewing the things that we are watching. Christian, any final thoughts for the folks listening along at home? Lion King is what won Hans Zimmer his first Oscar. Indeed it was. Shout out to our boy Hans. People thought he won for the first time with Dune. No, sir. The Lion King. The Lion King. He also did Le Petit Prince. Really? Yeah. I did not know that. Mm -hmm. Dang. Alrighty, folks. I'm Scott. He's Christian. And until next time, this has been Cinema on Tap. Thanks for listening.